welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 11 and episode 5. Jesus divides opinion in Jerusalem. We're going to be studying from John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 37 to 50. And we're going to be following on from the previous episode where we looked at the previous passage in John chapter 12, which is set in the middle of Passion Week, the week where Jesus died, which starts with the dramatic events of the triumphal entry on the Sunday, which we now call Palm Sunday, and then various other important events follow. Obviously, the bigger picture is that we're now very much at the end of Jesus' ministry. We're at the climax, at the crisis, at the point where his death is imminent and all the events of the past now come into sharp focus as pointing the way towards this moment. If you've been following us on our journey through the Gospels, you'll of course be very well aware that there's a very fundamental dividing point in the story between three years spent largely ministering and traveling in Galilee, the northern province where Jesus was based and where his home was, and the second part of his ministry, which was a definite decision to leave Galilee and travel south in order to finally arrive in Jerusalem and make a big impact in his visit to Jerusalem. So we've finally arrived and the Gospels devote a lot of time to telling us the events of every single day of this week. And we're right in the middle of that story now. So the things that we just need to keep in mind that have already happened include, of course, the opening event, the triumphal entry, where Jesus comes from the nearby village of Bethany and he arrives on a donkey and he comes into the city with huge crowds attending and applauding him, praising him and expressing their aspiration that hopefully he is the son of David, the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, who's going to come and make a big change, perhaps even overthrow the Roman authorities and the Jewish religious leaders in their corrupt practices. So the triumphal entry was a great moment on the Sunday, the Monday had another key moment, which is when Jesus went right into the temple courts, right into the heart of the Jewish faith. And there he challenged the traders who were under the authority of the priests. And he overturned their tables, interrupted their trading for a sustained period of time, uh, criticizing them for turning the temple into a den of robbers so that it was no longer effectively a house of prayer devoted to worship of God. So these are very dramatic events and could be seen, of course, as very provocative events. The religious establishment, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council and the high priest who chaired the Sanhedrin and looked after all the worship practices in the temple. They were very much on the defensive, really hoping to find a way to get rid of Jesus. They were using all their powers to influence the crowds against him. And we're going to see in the episode we're looking at today, some of the dynamics of what was going on in the mentality of the people in that week, because it appeared as though the crowds were very much on Jesus' side. But as we'll see in this episode, that support for Jesus 
was fairly superficial. It was on a very temporary basis. Things changed very suddenly. Now, Luke has a good description of this week in terms of Jesus's activities. Just a quick summary, which is worth starting with in Luke 21 verses 37 to 38. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went to spend the night on a hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. So that seems to be the pattern for the week. We've mentioned the Mount of Olives nearby and we've also mentioned Bethany, the village, which is right by the Mount of Olives. And Jesus seems to be based in Bethany and the Mount of Olives area. It's just a small hill, but because it's higher at its summit than the city of Jerusalem, it's a great place to go to get away from the city, but also to have a view of what's going on in the city. So every morning he went to the temple and he went to the courts, which is the wide social area where Jews and Gentiles were allowed to mix together and everybody could come who wasn't involved in any formal act of worship in the inner parts of the temple. They could socialise, they could meet together, they could talk together, they could study together. Children were allowed there, Gentiles were allowed there, men and women could mix together. And Jesus went and taught in those areas every single day. And then every single night he left the city and he went back to the area of the Mount of Olives and the village of Bethany. So that's the feel of what's going on every day during that week. Now, in our last episode, some people wanted to come and see Jesus. And we see them mentioned in John 12, verse 20. Some Greeks, and they said to Philip, we would like to see Jesus. These were probably Gentiles, probably from the Decapolis area. We discussed that in the last episode and they made a request to have a private discussion with Jesus because they're very interested in his ministry and in his work which they'd experienced in their district in the Decapolis in the north and the east of the country just outside the main heartland of Israel. Now Jesus didn't give them an interview but he did start to teach and he taught very specifically about his forthcoming death and how significant that was going to be. And during his conversation and teaching, he uttered a prayer which led to a remarkable, miraculous event. His prayer was in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then in verse 29, the voice of God, the Father speaks. A voice came from heaven. I've glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd thought that there was thunder in the sky or even that it was the voice of an angel. So that's the context. And Jesus continues to teach. And we then enter into this particular dialogue and teaching of this passage, which emphasizes the fact that opinion in Jerusalem is becoming divided over Jesus. It appears that everyone was supporting him on the day of the triumphal entry, but appearance is not always reality, as we are going to find out. So we're now going to just study this passage in sections, and 
just read it through and find out the things that it teaches us. We're just going to first of all look at verse 37, the first verse of our passage in John 12. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Now, what miracles are being referred to here in their presence, in the presence of the people of Jerusalem, in the presence of the crowds, in the presence of the people in the district, in the presence of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover? We can say that a number of remarkable miracles took place. For example, in the city of Jericho, not so far away, with a large crowd heading to Jerusalem, Jesus had remarkably healed blind Bartimaeus and his friend, causing a sensation. And in nearby Bethany, just a few kilometres outside the city, near the Mount of Olives, where Jesus walked to every day, Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in his tomb for four days. Jesus came sensationally to the village and commanded people to take the stone in the front of the grave away and then commanded Lazarus to come out, which he did with his grave clothes on. And then he said, take the grave clothes off. And Lazarus was restored to life and perfectly normal again. So that was a sensational miracle that everybody would have heard about. And a number of people actually witnessed and were in Jerusalem at the time, according to John's gospel, telling the story of what had happened to Lazarus. Even the opponents of Jesus, the Sanhedrin, in their consideration of the situation in John 11 and verse 47, when they had a meeting, said, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. His arch opponents, the Sanhedrin, who completely denied his authenticity as a Messiah, believed that he was inspired by demonic forces. Even they agreed amongst themselves in a private conversation that he performed many signs and miracles. And he'd even performed miracles on the day of the triumphal entry and the days that followed in the temple compound, right in the heart of Judaism. Matthew 21 verses 14 to 16. The blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So we can truly say that John is right here. He performed many signs in their presence. People had experienced Jesus' miraculous activity in and around Jerusalem, not just in Galilee in those three years in the north of the country, but right there in Jerusalem and nearby, there were many miracles being performed. But John says intriguingly here, and this requires a bit of explanation, they still would not believe in him. Now here we need to draw a distinction between the enthusiasm of the crowds and genuine belief in Jesus. The enthusiasm of the crowds, like so often, 
was to do with a moment of excitement and a moment of hope that Jesus would come and do something spectacular in Jerusalem. But it wasn't deep-rooted. And the reason we can be sure it wasn't deep-rooted was that the crowds of the triumphal entry had evaporated within five days. By the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, they'd gone. They weren't supporting him anymore because they hadn't really understood that his coming to Jerusalem wasn't as a military conqueror, as a messianic figure to overturn the Romans. It was to suffer and to die. They hadn't believed in the essential mission of Jesus, to die and then to rise again. Very few people believed in his essential mission. They were excited by his miracles, but they didn't draw the right conclusion from his miracles that he'd come to suffer and to die. So we're talking here about superficial following and not real faith. And that's why John says they still would not believe in him. Now, why was there so much resistance to the messiahship of Jesus and his mission? Well, I've already said in earlier episodes that the spiritual atmosphere in Jerusalem was very complicated for Jesus. Whilst in Galilee, he'd enjoyed high levels of popularity for his entire time there. In Jerusalem, people were very fickle, people were very divided. And every incident of Jesus coming to Jerusalem that is recorded in the Gospels between the beginning of his ministry and this point is filled with controversy, division and opposition. And these incidences are all recorded in John's gospel and every single time Jesus is in Jerusalem there's a problem, there's opposition, there's division, there's the authorities exercising pressure on people to try and prevent them very directly from believing in Jesus. They'd already adjudicated against him as I've said on many occasions before, they'd made their own private decision that Jesus was a false messiah operating under the power of demons. This is articulated publicly and Matthew 12, verse 24, when some Pharisees declare this in front of Jesus and a large crowd in Galilee. And the religious authorities had a lot of influence over the crowds, especially people who lived in Jerusalem and those visiting the city. And so I'm now going to move on from the first verse, and I'm just going to leave out a few verses and come back to them in a moment, but just to conclude this thought verses 42 and 43 yet at the same time many even among the leaders believed in him but because of the pharisees they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human praise more than the praise of god so some people did believe but they were being persecuted and they were being threatened with being removed from the synagogue which was a very severe discipline for a Jew to experience because the synagogue was their community center as well as their spiritual home it was the place they worshipped when they couldn't get to the temple and if they were threatened with being put out of the synagogue that was a serious threat which prevented many people from openly acknowledging Jesus Christ. They became secret believers, some of them, and we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of this talk. Let's now move to 
John's comments about the fulfilment of prophecy, John 12, 38 to 41. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Now we want to spend a little bit of time now thinking about Old Testament prophecy and how it relates to Jesus's messianic claims. We've covered this material in different contexts earlier on in our studies but I just want to repeat that for you by just reminding you that with Old Testament prophecies there were three types of use of Old Testament material in the New Testament. One was a direct prophecy where something is predicted in the Old Testament that happens specifically in the New Testament that is obviously a direct fulfillment of a remarkable prophecy. For example, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 speaks about Bethlehem, the village of Bethlehem, as the one from whom the ruler of Israel would come, speaking of the birthplace of the Messiah, according to Matthew's Gospel. That's a direct prophecy, something prophesied, and then it happens in the New Testament. But sometimes you get the use of an Old Testament description of something, which isn't actually a prophecy, which then that particular type of event which is described happens in the Old Testament period, but then the writer in the New Testament thinks that it's very similar to a type of event happening in the New Testament. A good example is Micah 7 verse 6, as described in Matthew 10 verses 35 to 36. But then you get a third category, not a direct prophecy, not an application. The third category is what we call a typological prophecy, where the prophecy describes a predicted event in the Old Testament and there's a greater fulfillment in the New Testament. Now, just keeping these categories in mind, we're going to look at the two prophecies here that are mentioned. They both come from Isaiah. And John says unambiguously in verse 41 that Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus's glory and spoke about him. So Isaiah had a vivid prophetic sense of the coming Messiah and prophesied about him in many different ways. If you go through the book of Isaiah, you'll see many messianic prophecies. He prophesies, for example, the virgin birth, Isaiah 7 verse 14. He prophesies about the Davidic son who will rule. Isaiah 9 verses 6 to 7. He prophesies that the family of King David, whose father was Jesse, Jesse's family will produce a shoot out of a stump of a tree in the future. It'll be cut down, but then it'll grow again in the person of Jesus. Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 3. And Isaiah has a number of prophecies which we call the servant songs in Isaiah chapter 42, 49, in chapter 50 and then an extended one in chapters 52 and 53 and then a conclusion in chapter 61 where the key figure is someone called the servant of the Lord 
And these prophecies are closely tied to the life of Jesus. So Isaiah provides more prophecy about Jesus than any other Old Testament prophet. And John here uses Isaiah to explain what's happening in the hearts of people at this particular time. So let's just look at these two prophecies particularly. Verse 38, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a verse, the first verse of Isaiah 53. Now this falls in one of the main prophecies of the Old Testament about Jesus, the servant song about the suffering servant that goes from Isaiah 52 verse 13 to Isaiah 53 verse 12. It's often quoted in the New Testament and if you read it through you'll see that it is a remarkable description of an individual person who voluntarily allows himself to suffer and to die, to be punished for other people's sins, to experience the rejection of his people and to suffer without complaint and then to see the light of life again. In other words, to be resurrected. The New Testament writers were very clear that this was a direct prediction of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this verse, Isaiah 53 verse 1, falls towards the beginning of that prophecy where Isaiah says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So Isaiah brings the message of this suffering servant, but he asks that poignant question, who's actually believed it? And the Implicit answer is that many people wouldn't believe, even though it's clearly prophesied and clearly revealed to Isaiah. And then John goes on after mentioning that prophecy, which incidentally we call a direct prophecy, because all of that passage, Isaiah 52 verse 13 to Isaiah 53 verse 12, that whole passage is a direct prophecy of Jesus. Nothing in the history of ancient Israel fulfills that prediction of that individual suffering servant at all until the point when Jesus comes, when it's fulfilled completely. Verse 39, for this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, quoting another prophecy, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Here's a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. And its immediate reference is to the people of Judah after the time of Isaiah, but related to his experience of the people of Judah, where he's basically saying that they've resisted the prophetic message to reform their country for such a long time that God has allowed them to be hardened in their sinful condition so that they won't turn and repent and then they will end up ultimately in judgment as other parts of Isaiah tell us and that judgment is the Babylonians came to Judah they came to the city of Jerusalem they surrounded it they captured it they conquered it they exiled the people of Judah and they destroyed the city and they destroyed the temple 
So this particular prophecy in its first fulfillment is about the people of Judah, one part of Israel, in the Old Testament period, about 600 years before the time of Christ. But because we describe it as a typological prophecy, John is saying that what happened to the ancient Jews of Judah during that time is being recapitulated or repeated in a similar pattern in the time of Christ. So the meaning of the prophecy applies to the original fulfillment when they went into exile and is also going to apply to the generation of Jews who experienced the life of Christ and saw what happened to him and decided to reject his claims as Messiah. So that's a very interesting comparison because the people in Isaiah's time and the generations that followed Isaiah's life experienced the judgment of God as a hostile imperial power came and took over their country, destroyed their city, destroyed their temple. And the same thing happened to the Jews of Jesus's day, because as I've stated in a number of other contexts, the events that happen in the decades after the New Testament are very, very interesting. They're clearly recorded for us in ancient historical sources outside the New Testament, notably the Jewish historian Josephus Flavius, who wrote a book called The Jewish War, describing as I've mentioned on a number of occasions, that in 66 AD, the Jews started a revolt against the Roman authorities. And this lasted about four years, leading to large numbers of Roman legions being sent to the land of Judea and Galilee and the surrounding area and dealing with all the different groups of rebels. And eventually they surrounded the city of Jerusalem they captured the city, they destroyed the city, and they destroyed the temple. In other words, exactly what happened in the Old Testament period that Isaiah was predicting happened again in the New Testament period. So a typological prophecy has two fulfillments with the same meaning and the same idea in each fulfillment. So John says that Isaiah's prophecy about the ancient people of Judah is being fulfilled a second time in the lifetime of the Jews of Jesus' day who chose to resist his claims to be the Messiah. Let's read the last section, verses 44 to 50. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I have not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. 
So Jesus is here saying to the Jews to believe in him is really to believe in the God of Israel because the God of Israel sent Jesus as the Messiah. He's come to save and not to judge at this particular time. But judgment will come to those who reject the message. And it appears from this passage that the majority of people who witnessed the life of Jesus in particularly in this last week of his life, are ultimately going to reject his claim to be the Messiah. As we finish this episode, I want to just think about a few things by way of reflection. There's such a strong contrast here. With Israel in general, particularly its leaders, there is willful disobedience. In Jesus, there is willful obedience to his father. Israel is heading for judgment. And there is a choice to be made. Are people going to keep heading for judgment? Or are they going to change their mind, even though the religious authorities will turn against them if they do, even threatening to throw them out of the synagogue? And so... The phenomenon of secret believers was arising in Israel just at this time. Some people believed in Jesus, but they didn't acknowledge it publicly. This has always been a phenomenon in the church. People who believe in Jesus, but they're not seen publicly as believers because of pressure in their society. The pressure was on here. The pressure was on from the authorities. They were doing everything they could to stop people believing in Jesus, the Messiah. This conflict will continue in the episodes that follow and in the dramatic events that we are going to discuss in the coming episodes. I hope you'll join us for those. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.